I want to talk about a, a crisis of gratefulness today out of Psalms chapter 73. It's a little bit of follow through to the series we ended two weeks ago on hardship and faith. Uh, yet I'm painfully aware because this is a life psalm. We're going to go to Psalm 73 because this is a life psalm for me. I'm painfully aware that some of you in various contexts, including here, have probably heard me talk about this psalm before. But I, I can't get away from it this Sunday morning. And so I want to talk about a crisis of gratefulness. We, I hope you've been grateful this week with thanksgiving, no matter what the state of your life is is in, um, that you found things to be grateful for. And Psalm 73 will end with a celebration of gratefulness, but it begins with a crisis of faith, a crisis of faith. These crises of faith usually deepen us. They, they help us no longer just be shallow in our faith, but they can be very dangerous. Many people are deconstructing their faith as they have crises of faith and then deconverting and it, it, it can be a painful and a dangerous time. Asaph is the writer of this psalm. He's a prophet and a poet in his own right and a worship leader in Israel. And, uh, and, and he starts framing his crisis of faith this way by, first of all, telling us what, what, what he does know to be true. Surely God is good to Israel. God's good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. So we belong to the Lord, whereas people, God is good to us. He said, I know that, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped and I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So I thought God was good to good people and will judge wicked people. But it's kind of like the, uh, you know, the pastor decided to visit the third grade boys' Sunday school class. He's sitting there. Everybody's intimidated. So he, he tries to break the ice with a question. He's sure they can answer. He says, boys, what has a round, fuzzy body, little round furry tail, long pointy ears, goes hop, hop, hop all through the forest? And one little guy sheepishly raises his hand and says, well, pastor, I know the answer's supposed to be Jesus, but it sure sounds like a rabbit to me. And, and this, is, this, this is Ace's problem. He said, I go out into the world, and what I see and experience in the world doesn't align with what they tell me in church. And he starts going off on how good the wicked have it. And it all finally focuses. He's painting with a very broad brush. But verse 12 focuses it. This, this is what the wicked are like. They're always free of care, and they go on amassing wealth. Now, we know that's technically not true, but it's just what it seems like to Asaph because his heart's hurting. Seems like they never have problems, and they just get wealthier and wealthier all the time. And the thing that makes this hurt so much is that he's the one following God, and his life looks very different. It doesn't look blessed at all. He says, surely, in fact, in vain... I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. So it seems like I've done this in vain. Like, I'm not sure it's been worth it to follow God. Because all day long, 
I mean, they're prosperous and, pro and popular, but all day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishment. What is wrong with this picture? They're popular and prosperous. I'm plagued and punished. And I'm the one who follows God. I mean, I'm the one who's trying to live holy and not compromise my sexual standards. Uh, and, and my friends who have compromised, they're out there having fun. And I'm the one who's sitting alone home on Friday nights. I mean, my brother turned his back on the Lord. He's going after God, and I'm trying to serve the Lord. And, and you know what? My company had a bunch of layoffs, and it included me. And my, meanwhile, my brother who turned his back on God, he's making all kinds of money. I mean, I mean, where's God who's good to good people? You know, I'm trying to stand up for Jesus in my school, and, and you know, you'd, you'd think the Lord had blessed me for that, but I'm the one who gets made fun of all the time. And I have to eat lunch alone some days. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. So what is wrong with this picture? Well, this will lead to a change of perspective. What we're going to find is that God doesn't always answer our questions, but he will change our perspective. And when your perspective changes, everything looks different. He first of all says in verse 15, now if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. But when I tried to understand this, it, it just troubled me deeply. And so he was a worship leader. So imagine if between the first and second songs this morning, Pastor Josh leading worship, just after the first song, just said, stop the music. I can't take it any longer. I don't even think I like this God that we're worshiping today. And he said, I almost did that. I almost went public. And it, that probably would have been a little unfair to them and pretty spiritually abusive if I tried. And I, I think there's places, if you're really struggling with doubt and you're in a crisis of faith. You need close part, prayer partners who you can pray with, talk with, get, get perspective. But, but he was a public worship leader. And I, I, I wish public spiritual leaders would not do this on social media. But he said, if I'd, he said I, 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 I could have hurt a lot of people if I'd gone that public with my doubts. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. I like to think he went to church just one too many times for his crisis to last. He said, I went to the house of God, and something happens, which always happens when we, when we come together in worship. You see, we get a new perspective. And he said, I saw their end. In other words... He went from a this-life perspective to an eternal perspective. Now, there's something about this life that, gets, that seems so real, because it's very real. But it seems so real that this life becomes bigger than it should look from God's perspective. Because from the perspective of eternity, this life's pretty short. And he said, I, I went into the house of God and and as I began to worship God, I began to see things. This happens to me in funerals, too. I start looking at life from the perspective of not living anymore and what's ahead and eternal life. 
You know, and the Apostle Paul said, that's why we live this way. We, we don't look at things that are seen. That's this life, which becomes so big that it begins to make eternity seem so small, if not irrelevant. He said, we don't. We defy that. We don't look at things which are seen, but we look at things which are not seen because the things which are not seen, they're the eternal things. And these things right now they're the t- that we see, they're the temporary things. So I was just reading yesterday an article by a, about a, f- a fairly famous author and journalist, Sebastian Junger. And he, he is an atheist, but just recently he had a near-death experience. Uh, somehow one of his blood vessels um, um, broke and he nearly bled out. And he was in ICI, ICU, they were trying to save his life, and he has a near-death experience. He said, I felt myself dying, and I felt myself, it was terrifying, because I started going into this very, very dark pit, this very, very dark place. And it was absolutely terrifying. Then they brought me back, and he had blood transfusions, but it really affected him. And he said, he said, it hasn't made me a believer in God yet. But, he said, it made me think that maybe there is something more to existence and to this universe. And that this life is more than the pure rationalists would allow us to think. Maybe there is something, he said, a little bit more that we just don't understand. And it's sort of, quote, unquote, waiting for us. Well, I want to tell you, eternity is waiting for you. Is waiting for you. You're going to be very much alive and there is a hell, and there is a heaven, and you're going to be very much alive, and that's where most of our existence will be. You look at life from that perspective, from the perspective of eternity. It's kind of like, you know, they say in stress management sometimes. Sometimes it's good. You're really stressed out. Just ask yourself, will this make any difference five or ten years from now? If the answer is no. And here's, you know, then why are you stressing out about it? And And we live, if we belong to the Lord, we live knowing that um, most of the stuff that preoccupies us and stresses us out probably won't make that much of a difference in light of eternity. This is a different perspective, right? This is not the perspective from this life looking at everything that's going to happen to me this week. But there is some, I mean, young men got it right. There is something waiting for us. And we begin to look at all of right now from the perspective of then. And all of a sudden, the things that seem so important right now aren't that important. And may I say the other thing, some things that don't seem that important right now become incredibly important to us. He goes in the house of God, and he sees, he, he's concerned about, oh, the wicked, they're pro- popular and prosperous. Me, I'm plagued and punished. I'm the one trying to be, be God, godly. And, and he said, but I saw their end. Verse 20, they are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Have you ever had a great dream, like a nice dream? And at the best part, you wake up. I hate it when that happens. I'll scrunch my eyes and say, God, could could you just put me back to sleep and pick up where we left off in that good dream? He says, right now, in this life, it's like living a really wonderful dream, but it's nothing more than a dream that you're going to wake up from. It's no more real than that. And I saw therein from the perspective of eternity. And so this begins to be a cause for hope for him. A cause for hope. 
this perspective change, first of all, makes him just realize something about himself. He said, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was kind of senseless and ignorant. He didn't say I was kind of. He says, I was senseless and ignorant. Let's face facts. And, and I was a brute beast before you. I, I was no smarter than a dumb animal. And this is why you will often hear me say, when you're in pain, when God doesn't make sense, when you seem to be doing everything right and nothing is going right and you can't figure your God out, that is not the time to come to your final theological conclusions about is there a God? If so, what's he like? And if you've been hurt in relationships with, with other people, when you're really hurt, that is not the time to come to your final conclusions about that other person because pain always distorts. Pain lies to us. Pain kind of has a warping effect. It's kind of we only see blurry. And he said, when, when my heart was bitter, when I was just angry at you, God, because it was tough for me and easy for ungodly people, when my heart was angry, it kind of made me stupid. Because I couldn't see the big picture that worship eventually restored for me. Yet, verse 23, I am always with you. Here's the bottom line. I'm always with you. And this means three things. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you take me to glory. The wicked wake up, and they find all their realities nothing more permanent than a dream. A good dream, but a dream. And they wake up to the horrors of turning their back on their creator and victimizing other people and all that sin does. But he said, you're going to take me to glory. In fact, I love the way commentators talk about that ver those two verses. They say, you've got a three-part sermon right there. <laughs> the Lord's always with me. That means he grasps me, he guides me, and he glorifies me. <laughs> Grasped, guided, and glorified. He said, you take me. You take me and hold me by my right hand. And, and I love the fact it doesn't say, I get to hold him. You know, we all are trying to hold the hand of the Lord. We're trying to follow him. But there are times, like, like my daughters, when I used to put my index finger down because the, the, their hands were so little, and, and they'd walk beside me just holding on to my hand. But we'd get to an intersection, and what I would do is I just kind of move my other fingers around and grab their wrist because although I liked when they held on to me, there are some times when I didn't trust their ability to hang on to me, so I held on to them. He, take, he grasps you by the right hand. And he guides you. Yeah, saying no to everything you want to do. I mean, wouldn't life be wonderful? No rules. I can, I can indulge every, every craving I have. No, no a creator to be accountable to. No rules. I, I, can just, I, I can just use my atheism to justify sinning as much as I want. I mean, how convenient would that be? Instead, God's counsel guides me. Jesus said it's a narrow way. It's not the wide way, most people. It's a narrow way to walk a way of holiness, to actually be obedient to Jesus. He says, but, but yet your counsel guides me. There's, there, there's something that's directing my steps with eternity 
eternity in mind. And in the end, I don't wake up from a good dream to a horror. I wake up to the glory of God and with him for all eternity. I'm grasped. I'm guided. Glorified. And so this begins his cele- this leads to his celebration of gratefulness. So who have I in heaven but you? And earth, where I'm so concerned about everything that doesn't make sense to me, earth really has nothing I desire besides you. It's always a painful process, but it's what takes us below our shallowness to where sometimes you don't know what to do with God, but you realize you have him. And you don't need anything else that this earth provides. He said, he's come to the bottom line. It's probably a good thing he didn't interrupt the worship service and just uh, vomit all his unbelief on the folks. But it probably was also good that God let him walk through this process to get to a bottom line where he could say, I don't have anybody else but you, Lord. And when it comes to it, from the eternal perspective, there's nothing I want to hold on to in this world instead of you. In fact, I might just give out completely. <laughs> in my heart and my flesh, it may fail. But God is the strength of my heart. And he is my portion forever. That means, that means him being with us, his presence. That his, he, he becomes like our portion. He becomes enough for what we need. He knows how to keep his eye on us. He knows how to walk with us. He knows how to feed us. His presence nourishes us. He becomes our portion. I'm not looking at whether I'm richer or not this week. I'm not looking at whether everything, everybody likes me this, this week or not, like all the people who turned their backs on God, at least to him, seemed like they were. He said, that, that's irrelevant now. Michael Card put it this way, the, the songwriter and author. God did not send the Messiah as a sort of solution everybody expected. They wanted someone who would kill Romans. Jesus instead died for the Romans. They wanted someone who would give them answers. Jesus gave them himself. What else but his presence could have perfectly answered all our deepest needs. For though we could have never imagined it, what we thought we needed, that is solutions to the problems that cause our pain, would have never fixed the problem. And so he gets his theology right in the next verse. Those who are far from you will perish. But he ends the psalm with this amazing declaration But as for me, it is good to be near God, period. I was a college student. Someone was unpacking Psalm 73. He got to this verse. Tears just started streaming down my face. I said, God, I so hunger for your presence. That's what I want more than anything else. I don't, I don't know what you'll let me be or not let me be. I don't know what you'll let me do or not let me do. I don't know whether I'll be rich or be poor. But something of all of life 
focused in on that one verse. When Asaph said, my good is to be near God, just to be near him, because he's got his eye upon me.